you will have heard uh, the story of how Titanic was called the unsinkable ship. Uh, you, you remember that, uh, that, that they called it the unsinkable ship. Well, there's a story that goes that um, before the Titanic set off on its faithful, fateful journey, uh, the captain was overheard saying, even God himself couldn't sink this ship. Well, if that's true, it turns out that that's not the kind of challenge you want to put to God. Uh, as I read uh, the story that we're looking at this morning from Acts chapter 1, I was reminded of the Apostle Peter, who's kind of one of the main characters in the story. His words in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 6 and 7, uh, he's quoting uh, God in the Old Testament saying, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Uh, Of course, Peter's talking about the Lord Jesus and two different responses to the Lord Jesus, those who believe in him and those who do not believe in him. And, And we see those two responses to Jesus in our in our story this morning, um, we're going to see that there are those who are on the rock and that leads to supernatural strength, making them supernaturally strong. But then there's one who's under the rock who gets supernaturally squashed. And now the story of the ones who are on the rock make up uh, the first and last part of um, the story that we're looking at. And the one who gets under the rock makes up the middle part of our story this morning. But I hope you'll see as we go through the passage, you keep it open in front of you, that, that God is showing us that his plan is indestructible. But you can live in such a way as to be on the rock, which will lead to giving you supernatural strength, but you can also live in such a way as to resist the rock, and, and that ends up with being supernaturally squashed. And, and you go, oh man, that, that's, that's interesting language that you choose there. Maybe a bit vivid, maybe a bit graphic. But have a look at verse 18 with me and, and try to pick up on the way in which Luke, the writer, wants us to view the situation of trying to resist the rock of ages. Verse 18, now Judas acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong... He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. That's kind of MA kind of uh, description there. And and you can see the contrast between um, what happens to those who are on the rock and what happens to those who are under the rock nowhere more clearly than, than the phrase that Luke uses in verse 18 when he says, all his bowels gushed out, and then the phrase that he uses in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, verse 18, remember the Apostle Peter stands up, the Spirit has been poured out, and he's trying to explain to them what's happening with this outpouring of the Spirit. And he quotes the prophet Joel, saying, God saying through the prophet Joel, I will pour out my Spirit. Because guess what? They're exactly the same word. He uses exactly the same word for Judas as he does for God's people in chapter 2, verses 17. In other words, for the man who rejected the rock, all of his bowels gushed out. For those who received the rock, 
I will pour out my spirit. I will pour out my spirit. It's quite a stark contrast, isn't it, between those who will reject the rock and those who receive the rock. Uh, It's like what Paul says in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. The one who, those, all people reap what they sow, he says. The one who sows to please the sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. How did Judas sow to please the sinful nature? Well, he was greedy, remember? He thought that the cornerstone, Jesus, the precious cornerstone, what was he worth to Jesus? 30 silver coins. And that's how he betrayed him. Because he was sowing to the sinful nature. And so what did he reap? He reaped destruction. But as wicked and treacherous as what Judas did was, Peter points out in, in his message that this was in fulfilment of Scripture. He quotes Scripture and says, this was predicted. This is a fulfilment of what God said. He quotes Psalm 69, verse 25. May his place be deserted. deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And that's what happened to this field, the field of blood. And so whilst the disciples would have been deeply disoriented and disheartened by this betrayal of one of their own who had been with them and with Jesus for three years and betrayed the precious cornerstone, even whilst they felt that, they would have taken solace in the fact that this was part of the sovereign plan of God prophesied hundreds of years ago in Scripture. And also they would have taken heart in the fact that God is able to deal with evil in his own way and in his own time. The Apostle Paul says, I will avenge. It is mine to repay. Leave room for God's wrath. And they saw God being able to judge wickedness on his own. But then Peter quotes another Psalm, 109 verse 8, which says, May another take his place of leadership. So how comforting it would have been to see that not only was Judas' betrayal predicted, his betrayal was also provided for in Scripture. God was like, that. no, 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 let another one take his place. Do you see how God's plan is indestructible? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Nowhere more clearly were the gates of hell coming upon Jesus than through Judas' betrayal, where he took the, 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 the pain of hell, the fire of hell on himself on the cross. But then he rose from the dead. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. God's plan is under, indestructible, indestructible. And so we've looked at the man who ends up under the rock, but let's look at those who are building on the rock. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. Under the rock, supernaturally squashed. On the rock, supernatural strength. Remember that Jesus is the main actor in the book of Acts. We see that in verse 1. Gospel of Luke, all that he began to do and teach. In other words, the book of Acts, all that Jesus continued to do and teach. And remember, we see Jesus as the commanding officer, right? He's risen from the dead, conquered Satan, sin and death. And he gives his troops their marching orders. Can you remember what they were? Two things from last week. Wait for the Lord. 
until you're clothed with power from on high, stay in Jerusalem, and then witness to the Lord. So they've received their marching orders from the commanding officer, the king of kings, as the language was used last night at the coronation. From the king of kings, they're marching orders. And so what do they do in verse 12? They return to Jerusalem. They did what Jesus said. It's like in the Great Commission, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That, that he said, stay in Jerusalem. And so building on the rock means obeying Jesus. And that's what they did. And they waited there for the promise of the Holy Spirit. But what I want to do is I want us to look at what were they doing while they were waiting. There was a 10-day hiatus between that day and the day of Pentecost. What were they doing and how were they preparing for power? And I want you to see two things. They were seeking God's guidance. I'm putting them in reverse order that we see them in the passage. And they were gathering to pray. So firstly, let's see how they were seeking God's guidance. They had a leadership and management issue that comes up in any organisation. And what was it? Replacing a leader. Isn't that, isn't that a pain? When like, oh, we spent all that time. We've got to replace a leader. That leadership and management issue comes up. They need to replace a leader. And the question is, who shall we choose. And we see, we get guidance here about, a, about decision making in the church, but even for us individually that we can glean from this leadership and management issue. And the first thing I want you to note is that this is a prayer meeting. It's not a planning meeting. The planning happens in the context of a prayer meeting as opposed to the way we often do it, which is that the prayer happens in the context of a planning meeting. There's a big difference. You see, the heart behind this is John 15, verse 5, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me you will bear, and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so they're praying, and it's in that context that they come up with this planning. I've got to say, this insight alone has brought about a pretty dramatic reshaping of my approach to leadership and management, to leading the staff team, and to the parish council. The planning takes place in the context of a prayer meeting. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus is the CEO. He's the boss. If you want to get things done, who do you talk to? The CEO. The planning takes place in the context of praying. That is step one in seeking God's guidance. It needs to be done in an atmosphere of prayerful dependence on the spirit of Jesus. But secondly, this decision-making, you see that they search the Scriptures. We've seen already how uh, Peter quotes Scripture when they're seeking God's guidance on this issue of replacing and finding a leader. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says, Friends, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, with the Holy, which the Holy Spirit, through David, foretold. When I read the scripture, I was reminded of what Paul says in in, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, where he says, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. Peter says that this scripture was foretold through the Holy Spirit. And this, remember this idea of breath and spirit. In the Greek, they're the same word, the pneuma of the spirit. And so when Paul says all scripture is God-breathed, he's saying that the spirit wrote, Every word. It's inspired. Do you notice the word spirit, inspired? It it was given and breathed out by the spirit, which, by the way, how do you talk? The only way that we can talk is with breath, 
It's the breath that passes through our vocal cords. And so when these are God's words, and they're given to us in Scripture. And so to, to push the envelope with you, that's why the, the uh, preacher, Colin Smith, says, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. And if you want to hear God speak audibly, read the Bible out loud. Now, some of you are going, oh, hang on, Kieran, what about the way God speaks like this and the way that God speaks like this? Yeah, man, I'm a Bible man. It's all there in the book of Acts. But do you want to know what my strike rate is for hearing from God when I read the Bible? These other ways, we can. it can be our imagination. It could be what we had for dinner last night. It could be of our own imaginations. But do you know what my strike rate is for hearing from God when I read the Bible? It's 10 out of 10. It's 100%. Please don't get me wrong on this. We see God speaking and promptings of the Spirit. You see it in Acts 13. You see it all through the book of Acts. But the strike rate with the Scriptures is 10 out of 10. So if you want to seek God's guidance, do what Peter does in this context, which is search the Scriptures. It's there in the story. And so... Step one, an atmosphere of prayer. Step two, searching the scriptures. Step three, and these aren't necessarily sequential steps, um, but I want you to see that this decision was leader-directed, but community-involved. So that it was leader-directed by, by the Apostle Peter, whom Jesus had put as the leader. Verse 15, you see in those days, Peter stood up among the believers. And so God is not an anarchist. He puts leaders in charge of the body of his church. But then based on the scriptures, he says, we need to replace Judas. But then he also gives the parameters for the decision that the community is going to make, which he's only just got from Jesus. What kind of leader are we going to choose in verse 21? He says, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, from the beginning, from the baptism of John, remember the river, Luke chapter 3, is it, or 4, the baptism of John, until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become a witness with us to Jesus' resurrection. And, of course, he's just doing what Jesus said because he said, you will be my witnesses. And so he's just saying, well, we need to find someone who was a witness. But then that's leader directed. But then in verse 23, the community was involved. Look, it says, so they proposed to Joseph and Matthias. So they is the 120 believers. They proposed to Joseph and Matthias. And so it's leader directed, but it's also community involved. Um, Fourthly, this decision-making of replacing Judas, I want you to see that it was character-based. Have a look at verse 24. How wonderful that uh, the kids are looking at that great passage um, where God was selecting his king for Israel in 1 Samuel this morning. It says, Then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. He's the king. He's the CEO. He's the boss. Hey, CEO, which leader do you want? We can't see people's hearts. Uh, the Greek word for this is it's one word, know everyone's hearts. It's kardiognosta. Does this ring any bells? Cardio, heart. Ognosta is from where we get diagnosis. Only God knows people's hearts. And so they, there's a moment of surrender where they're like, Lord, only you know 
people's hearts. Only you can see people's hearts. And, and, and we need your, we're dependent on you to get that person who has their heart right with God. This is a character-based decision. But I also want you to see, as a side note, as we think about this decision-making process within the church, I want you to see the two irreducible, fundamental qualifications for leaders in the church. And the first one that you see is, and I think this is first and foremost, is conviction. Because what do they need to be? Both of them are this. They need to be witnesses. They need to be witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, the implication for for today, because none of us here are first-hand witnesses, we didn't see with our own eyes, so so that the implication for us today is that leaders in the church today need to be faithful to the first-hand witnesses whom God inspired and who wrote it all down for us in a book called the New Testament. That's why in the New Testament we see that um, Paul and others describe the church as being built on the foundation of the apostles. And that's also why in Jude, um, the, the writer of the letter Jude, he says this, I felt compelled to write to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted or delivered to God's holy people. So the first qualification is convictions that are built on the apostolic foundation. In the Nicene Creed, we talk about being one holy apostolic church. And the apostolic deposit is what they wrote down for us in the scriptures. The first qualification are their convictions. But they've got two of them, right? They were both witnesses. They both qualify on those grounds. So um, they had their convictions. They were both probably very competent. But then they, they, they go, well, Lord, we can't see people's hearts. And so the next qualification is character, conviction and character. And they, they want someone of godly character, the fruit of the spirit. And so in verse 26 then, after um, having these two candidates, they get to this moment of surrender where they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was added to the 11 apostles. Casting lots, well, uh, there's Old Testament background for this, and yet uh, we never see this kind of decision-making uh, process again in the New Testament. And some say, uh, and I tend to agree, that that is because of the outpouring of the Spirit in the next chapter where we are able, through His Spirit, uh, to get that guidance. But I, I do think it's saying something about our ultimate inability to know everything, you know, the casting lots is this moment of, of surrender to God, giving it to his hands. After you've taken all those steps of, of prayerfulness and searching the scriptures and involving the leaders and, and the community and, and ensuring that they're people of biblical conviction and Christ-like character, there's a moment of surrender where you have to put yourself in, in God's hands, right? And this kind of step of faith that God chooses and it's his choice and we see that very much that it is his choice so that's the first thing and and i think i think there's a lot of helpful stuff in this for decision making in the church and i've got to say how encouraging uh, it is and i've just got a vested interest here but but we, the, the way in which the parish council conducts itself in exactly uh, this way it's been wonderfully uh, encouraging to see all of these elements in uh, decision-making 
uh, process. But churches can veer off in all kinds of different directions, and so it's helpful for us to come back to Scripture as a foundation. But the second thing that they're doing is that they're gathering to pray, seeking God's guidance and gathering to pray. Verse 14, all these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer. Uh, Reflecting on this verse, uh, one commentator says, uh, just as Pentecost came after constant prayer by the disciples, the history of the church demonstrates that revival also comes only after persistent prayer. Uh, It's like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, whenever God determines to do a great work, he first sets his people to pray. Whenever God determines to do a great work, he first sets his people to pray. You see this throughout the church history and the story of the church. You see it, for example, in New York City in 1857 when the stock market began to uh, stumble. Uh, Banks were failing, factories were closing, unemployment was increasing. And in 1957, uh, a guy called Jeremiah Lanfear decided to rent a hall on Fulton Street And he opened the doors at midday for one hour to pray. Well, the first time that he did it was September 23 at 12 p.m. And he prayed alone for the first hour. But for the second hour, second half hour, six people joined in for the prayer meeting. Two days later, one of the major banks in New York crashed. And so on that day, nearly 40 people attended his prayer meeting on Fulton Street. Then on October 10, the the whole stock market crashed. And so a week after that, 100 people came to this daily prayer meeting. Within six months of him starting, some 10,000 people gathered for daily prayer in churches and venues across New York City every day at noon. Some 10,000 people gathered. And within three months, of what became known as the Fulton Street Revival. There were prayer meetings all across the cities and the towns of the United States at 12 o'clock at noon, praying and crying out to God. John Smed writes that this unique awakening was all about prayer. There were no sermons or teaching. Everyday people attended and anyone was allowed to pray for up to five minutes. That's a good limit. Uh, Time was set aside to share testimonies of answered prayer. Does that ring any bells? Time was set aside to share testimonies of answered prayer. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what happened at St. Philip's. The praying preceded the the church building and they had prayer meetings on Marmion Street and they had testimonies of answered prayer. Uh, The Presbyterian magazine reported that as of May 1858, so only eight months after Jeremiah started his daily prayer meeting, nearly 50,000 people were converted to Christianity. Some of the people who were impacted by this outpouring of the Holy Spirit were D.L. Moody, the great evangelist. I'm so glad we've got people from the Salvation Army here because William Booth was deeply impacted from this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and even the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the the Prince of Peaches. These these were not the Prince of Peaches. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These these were all deeply impacted by this wonderful outpouring of the Spirit, and it took one guy to start a prayer meeting for one hour at midday, Jeremiah. 
Indeed, when God determines to do a great work, he first sets his people to pray. As you know, there are lots of different ways that our family as a church gathers to pray, some big, some small. But the two that I really want to commend to you are the pre-service prayer meeting at at 9 o'clock. Who cares if we can't fit them? They couldn't fit them on Pentecost Sunday when 3,000 were converted. Join us for pre-service prayer meeting. They were devoted to this. They, they, they were there like clockwork. And the other one is Kingdom Come, the night of prayer and praise that we launched uh, last weekend. Um, we're going to move that uh, to a Sunday night to see if we can have more people coming uh, along to our night of prayer and praise. Uh, and the only other thing I'd say is this. It, look, there are restraints. I know that people are under time constraints, but it would be great if you could find one regular meeting where your primary purpose is to pray, where your primary purpose is to pray. Discussion is good. Supporting each other is good. Studying the Bible is good. But it would be wonderful if everyone in the body was able to find a meeting. It could be you and one other person where the primary purpose was to pray. It's the body of Christ breathing. Well, this morning we've seen that God's plan is indestructible. We've seen God's people building on the rock and a great outpouring of supernatural strength. Jesus is the precious cornerstone who says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And so we've seen the the way to be under the rock by resisting that precious cornerstone and the way to be on the rock, the, the seeking God's will and the gathering together to pray. One day there was an evangelist uh, called Campbell Morgan. He was in Italy and there was this tourist site. It was a graveyard and he decided to visit this uh, graveyard and uh, he uh, found uh, the tombstone or the graveyard of an avowed atheist. Um, and, and so this, this atheist from over 100 years ago, he was still a little bit nervous about the claims of Christianity and the resurrection from the dead. So, so he uh, kind of as insurance, he put a massive stone, massive stone slab over his coffin to, to avoid being raised from the dead. But uh, it turns out what happened, it must have happened, is that um, while they were burying him, one of the um, acorns from the oak trees must have fallen uh, into his coffin and so a hundred years later that acorn had grown up to be a massive oak tree and so this big thick stone slab was completely decimated. Reflecting on this incident the evangelist Campbell Morgan said if a tiny little acorn which has the power of biological life in it can split a massive stone slab of that magnitude. Can you imagine what the power of the resurrected Jesus, our King, is able to accomplish through his church? Brothers and sisters, maybe you have a stone slab that you're banging up against at the moment. Maybe it's a chronic illness or or a breaking body. Maybe it's suffocating loneliness. Maybe it's your financial situation. Maybe it's your family or your marriage. Do not be discouraged. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. 
In other words, God's plan is indestructible. Amen? Amen. Thank <laughs> you.